Hi, and welcome to our latest episode of Inside the Classroom. I'm Steve McNeil, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Russell Emery. On today's episode, we have a special guest, Sam Strickland. Sam is the head teacher of the Dustin School in Northampton, and who has recently published the fantastic book, Education Exposed. Hi, Sam. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Yourself? I'm great. I'm great. You know, we're delighted to be speaking with you today, Sam. Uh, and if you wouldn't mind just to start off the podcast by telling us a bit about your teaching journey so far and maybe give the listeners an insight in how your career has evolved. Yeah, so I started um, many years ago as a, a PGCE trainee under Christine Council at the University of Cambridge, um, right at the start of 2000. Um, I then started my career in an upper school. So we had year nine to year 13. And in my in my first year, whilst I was uh, appointed as a history teacher, I taught eight subjects, five of which were to A2 standards. Uh, I taught the the old AVCE leisure and tourism for those people that are kind of old enough listening to remember that course. Um, and then in my second year of teaching, I taught seven different subjects because they went a bit easy on me. Uh, and, and PE made up a third of my timetable. Um, I was then made... Um, the lead for classics and I knew nothing about classics to be fair so I had to swap up really fast um, and I was made head of history while I was at that school and a lead practitioner in teaching and learning and I was also um, put in charge of skit um, trainees across North Bedfordshire for history which was a really great experience and then I moved about eight years into that role onto a new school it was an all-girls school in Hertfordshire as um, an assistant head teacher in charge of a sick form and also headed up a consortium arrangement uh, with two other schools within the town. One was an all boys school and one was a, a normal mixed school. And that was a really different experience. And I, again, w working with just an, in an all girl environment had to be very kind of different in terms of my approach to how I was in what was quite a sporty based school in my previous school. Uh, I then moved to an outstanding flagship um, school within a trust of 10 schools, uh, whereby I was vice principal in charge of student care for nearly two years. Uh, and the school's approach was very much restorative and approach. So it didn't use punitive sanctions at all. So that was really different for me, um, having come from a school which, which had quite a systemized approach to, to behavior. Um, but equally, I then moved on to, to do different positions within my kind of time there. Um, so I was in charge of the school improvement plan, the CEF, the curriculum, uh, the sick form. I was acting head for a year. And then within the trust, I was uh, a lead for safeguarding across the 10 schools. And I worked for a brief period of time, uh, just under a year, in, in a free school within the trust to help them secure their first ever set of results. And then I moved on to the Dustin School, which is where I'm now the substantive principal and been there for just over three years. And that's been quite a, an interesting journey from taking a school that was kind of floundering to now being one of the top sort of 30 most improved schools in the country. So it's been, yes, yeah, it's, it's been a real roller coaster of a career in many regards. Sam, I'm just, just looking through your, um, your background in education, but I also noticed uh, if you weren't a teacher, you would run your own martial arts school. Mm. That's a bit of a hobby of myself. So what, what kind of martial arts did you do? Yeah, I've, uh, I've done kung fu and kickboxing since I was about 13. Uh, I'm a third degree black belt in three different uh, martial arts styles. I did a bit of extreme martial arts for a while. And you know, as you get older, your back goes. So uh, I had to kind of slow that bit down. Uh, but yeah, I do Kung Fu kickboxing. So yeah, it's, it's a good stress relief, if nothing else. So um, just again, like some of the, the stuff you've kind of touched on already, you've spoke about, you've had tough times at schools and how you've, you've, you've kind of came out of that. 
I'm going to speak a wee bit about your book now, Education Exposed. What was your inspiration or your reason for writing this? Yeah, it's quite a funny one because I didn't really ever set out to write a book. And in, in kind of, I guess, general terms, I'm quite new to Twitter in many regards. I joined Twitter in, Jan I think it was January of 2018. And I put a few tweets out which gained some traction and I wrote a couple of blogs. And then um, in the autumn of 2018, I... I was asked to talk at um, Research Ed Kent, and in the in the the speakers room, um, I met Mary Myatt, who had uh, who'd read quite a lot of the blogs that I put out, and we were talking for about an hour uh, before we were you know due to go and speak, and she she basically said you should write a book, and I I thought she'd just been polite, if I'm really honest, and that's not meant to discredit Mary, uh, and thought she was kind of joking, uh, and, and kind of thought nothing of it, uh, went off, did my talk, went home, uh, and then I don't know why, but I logged on my work emails. And um, there, there, there was uh, an, in, uh, an email from John Cat basically offering me um, a book deal to write a book. And then suddenly it became quite real. And I thought, oh, maybe I should. Uh, and that's kind of where it came about. And then, then I started to think, well, OK, oh, now this is quite serious. I've actually got to write the thing. And it ended up being about six or seven months kind of delayed from where I should have written it. Um, I, arguably probably because of the pressure of my job. Uh, I was just trying to grab moments to write the book. Um, and I just thought, well, let's do it around what I'm doing at the moment as a head, which is school improvement in what was quite a challenging school and how we've, we've turned that school around. So that's, and I thought it was an interesting um, kind of story to share with people. And, and in some regards, it is a bit of a story, although there's a very clear vision of, I think, how school improvement can be undertaken, but by resisting fads. And I, I wanted it to be a short, sharp, punchy book which was no nonsense, gave loads of questions for people to think about, but also gave loads of practical advice of things that do work and things that don't work, in my own experience and against research. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that, obviously I'm new to the teaching um, profession, there's a lot of stuff from your book that I can relate to already, so I've found it to be quite um, beneficial so far. Brilliant, thank you ever so much. Sam, Sam, I absolutely loved your book. Um, the first couple of chapters, you talk about leadership. Um, so without going into too much, but what do you think is the most important attribute towards strong leadership, either, I guess, as a head teacher or SLT or maybe even within a department like what I am? Yeah, I don't think, and I don't think it matters what position you are within a school. Even a class teacher is a leader because they've got pupils to lead. I think it's having a clear sense of what it is you're trying to do and trying to achieve. It's that kind of Simon Sinek, always start with a why. And if you know why you're doing something, that, that allows you to create, I think, a far stronger um, sense of purpose behind what you're trying to do. And people can then, I think, relate to that more as well. I think something that's really key, especially as you move further up the ladder, is to never forget what it's like to be a normal classroom teacher teaching 22 out of 25 periods or however many periods a normal teacher teaches from one school to the next in a working week. And kind of an analogy I often give when I do talks about leadership is the idea that a class teacher is a bit like a bottle of water. When you take the seal off, there's only so much space that's left at the top and how much more are you going to pour in before it all starts to overflow? So I think it's about equally about rationalizing just what your expectations are of people and being realistic over those. You know, if, if you're stuck in a classroom or on the field as a PE teacher for 22 hours of the week, out of the potential 25 in the working week, you've only got a small smidgen of, of actual thinking time to be able to do, you know, an initiative, uh, you know, a priority. And, and then the other bit within that, I think, is actually 
being really careful to avoid all the seductive um, fads that keep coming into the profession, wherever we are, whether it's in England or Scotland or wherever else, there's always people trying to, you know, share or sell you silver bullets, which seem really like, oh, why would we not do that when they're presented to you? But actually, when you kind of drill into it, they're a load of rubbish. And I think that's something we've just got to be really alive and alert to as well. But I, I guess in, in short answer to your question, it's having a real strong sense of what you're trying to achieve and why, and then sharing that and communicating it really effectively with people. Yeah, I agree with that, Sam. Um, just a statement oh, from your book again. You state that behaviour should be taught and that behaviour is a subject in its own right. And it should be the number one priority in schools above everything else. Could you maybe elaborate a bit more on this, Sam? Yeah, I mean, but from, the, from my experience in my career and experience of other people that I know who are friends who are teachers, behaviour is, um, is a thing that can really make or break your ability to teach, really. If you're constantly going into lesson after lesson after lesson where the behaviour is off the wall at its most extreme, um, you can't do your core job. You can't actually teach. And, and I think within the context of the profession as a whole, very little time is devoted to classroom or behaviour management. If I think back to my own kind of training over the years, I think I can count on one hand how many times somebody's addressed behaviour with me in terms of how to manage it and how to lead on it. It's something that once you've done your teacher training, it's just an assumed thing that you can do. And you know, once that classroom door shuts as an NQT and there's no one else there, no one can hear you scream because it's a bit like a vacuum, you kind of, it's you and the kids and you could easily be eaten alive and no one would ever know unless you kind of divulge that to someone. And, and again, depending on the school culture, that might be deemed a weakness. Uh, and I've, and I've been in environments where, um, you know, the number of detentions being issued by a member of staff or the number of behaviour points or whatever uh, has been deemed to be, you know, if, it, if it's too many, that teacher clearly can't cope. They're, they're really weak at what they're doing. And actually, it might be that that member of staff is actually trying to adhere to a school policy, you know, to the letter. Um, but I do think we, we, fought, we live or die by the quality of our school culture and the behaviour in our school. And if behaviour is secure, then you can teach properly. Uh, and you can think about your curriculum and you're not chasing your tail all the time trying to sort behaviour out, which actually becomes a really big kind of fog that clouds actually what we're there to do. So I do think if we don't get that right, everything else is kind of a waste of time. There's no point in talk, you know, as a head teacher, there'd be no point in me talking to my staff about curriculum design, the curriculum as a progression model, how to teach great lessons. If all my staff would turn around and say to me is the kids don't behave. When you're going to learn, when you're going to listen, when you're going to do something about it, you know, you're going to you're going to fall quickly from grace in, in that regard. I would argue. So I'm um, just to follow on for that. You mentioned in your book uh, quite a few times the teachers never to blame for poor behaviour, mm. which I think is a really powerful message. Can you just maybe explain what you mean by that? Yeah. A really convenient narrative, I think, that not necessarily all senior t senior leaders or senior teams use, but certainly some do, is that behaviour is kind of the Akuma Matata approach. It's not our problem. You know, we're the senior leaders. We're here to di direct the strategy of the school. And behaviour is the responsibility of the class teachers to resolve and deal with. And then there's very little thought given to how that actually is going to happen in real terms, in terms of the training of the pupils, in terms of the training of the staff, in terms of vis the visibility of the senior team to yomp the corridors and deal with behaviour. So 
my, my view is that it's quite a convenient thing to say when behavior goes wrong or things go wrong in a school, it, it, yeah, it's the teacher's fault. It's, it's always the teacher's fault. I know you could flip that on its head and say, well, you know, you can't always just blame SLT. I know it's a team. There is a degree to which it's a team effort. But I think just solely blaming teachers when behaviour is poor is really, really weak. And to say, and it's something that's been trained into many of us and in many of the professional development courses that are kind of out there. And I think about MPQSL, even MPQH, when I did my own, talked about good planning leads to good behaviour. And again, I just think that's a really convenient kind of smokescreen for senior leaders to distance themselves from behavioural issues in this school. You know, I could plan the most amazing lesson on paper. I could articulate to you an incredible lesson. I could have David Beckham coming in to do, you know, how you curl the ball for a free kick and the Pope's going to give a motivational speech. But if the culture in the school isn't right and the behaviour isn't right, they might tell them equally where to go as much as they might tell me. So it kind of, what a waste of planning. So I think blaming teachers doesn't really get you anywhere. It's about what's the solution. And I would take poor behaviour quite personally that I've not trained the pupils and the staff properly in what I want. And actually, I'd take that as a reflection on myself that we've got something wrong somewhere. One of the things you said within your book as well that's kind of stuck with me, obviously, my NQT years, there's been some pupils that I've had within my classes that I found really challenging. And then I maybe go and speak to another staff member the, the thing that you mentioned in the book that they've said a hundred times is they behave well for me. So it's maybe trying to get some of those ideas or some of those interventions where, well, if they're behaving for you, then maybe I should be taking and adapting that and putting it into my class. That's such a toxic line, isn't it? They behave for me and, you know, they walk off. Yeah, absolutely. If, if, they're, if they're that great, why can't, they, why can't you go into their lessons and watch what they're doing? Could they not team teach with you? Could they not give you pointers or tips on how to deal with, you know, Johnny, Jane, whoever it might be that isn't, isn't behaving for you in theory? Yeah, I think for me, that's just, again, I'm trying to establish myself as a teacher. So you're trying to go mm -hmm. in there with your classroom ethos. You're trying to link it to the school ethos. But if you don't really know that pupil and, and you're just new to this profession, then it can be challenging. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the NQT is really tough. And it's also really tough when you start a new school just in general, because you're always trying to establish yourself. And I think the, the worst thing is just not to be given support, not to be given help, not to be given guidance and not to have somebody that, that will come in and have your back yeah. to, so, and to, such a, to the point where you have established yourself with, with the pupils. You state subject knowledge and understanding is king. What do you mean by this? Yeah, so it's your subject specific knowledge is, I think, so integral to your ability to be a strong teacher. I don't I don't use the words good or outstanding. I don't really know what those what those terms really mean i think uh, what we try to badge in in my own school and how i view things is about whether you're an effective teacher or not but and there's there are people who will push the idea of um a pedagogically driven curriculum which is all about activities it's activity after activity after activity and a question where, where what learning actually sticks when all you're doing is throwing kind of fad driven activities at kids all the time uh, you know I appreciate some activities are necessary of course they are in a lesson but your command of your subject is so important I mean, if, if I put it in a PE sense if I was to go and teach football and I had no understanding of football I'm going to struggle 
apart from probably watching a few YouTube clips to try and get my, my knowledge up potentially. Uh, you know, and that's a bit of a flipping example. But it's the same with, you know, a classroom based subject. It's being able to know what levers to push and when, what questions to ask and when to drive the learning to the next level. Otherwise, you end up being quite stagnant. And I think back to my own experience of teaching eight different subjects as an NQT, five to A level. You know, I was literally a page of the textbook ahead of those kids. And I knew going into every lesson, if I was asked a difficult question by, you know, one of the one of the pupils aspiring to get an A star and there were kids in those classes, I'd be eaten alive because I'd just be stood there thinking either I've got to BS my way through this or I simply don't know. And, I'll t and my response would be, I'll, I'll come back and let you know. And there's only so many times you can do that before the kids realise you don't know a bloody thing. And, you know, you, you then feel really stupid. And that's a really uncomfortable position to be in as well. So I think in terms of your own confidence, but also the pupil's confidence in you, your subject knowledge does need to be high and, or strong. Um, but that's... But it's always something I would argue that we're forever going to develop. It's not like, you know, you can just do a download and that's it. It's done. You know, your subject knowledge is something that will always develop and evolve and improve. But I think that's more than about marginal gains and you just getting incrementally better. But so, yeah, my, my point within the book is that subject knowledge is absolutely key to everything in terms of your effectiveness as a, as a teacher, especially once, once you've got the behaviour sorted, you know, that's the next kind of key bit if you're going to drive the learning within your lessons. I guess obviously, Sam, you know, staff professional development is key. Mm. And that's something that's quite, quite big and quite strong and something that's been a big focus on the last couple of years in Scotland is making sure that staff are continuously professionally developing themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, in terms of professional development, I think of it in a, in a number of different guises. I, th I talk a lot about the mothership, which is the school and satellites, which are all the different departments that make up the school. So you've got kind of the, the, the key driver that the school wants. And I think, and again, it goes back to your question about what makes a really successful leader. If you've got a really clear, focused improvement plan, so you know what you're driving towards, then your professional development for your staff for a holistic sense of your school is quite focused and quite tight. Uh, I mean, to give you examples of what we're doing this year, our improvement plan is called doing the same but better. So we've slowed everything down. We're not making any more changes as in this current academic year. And our three drivers were to embed our curriculum, embed our culture and maximise outcomes. So all of our training for our staff has be, been geared around culture and behaviour. So we've had Tom Bennett in to, to talk about behaviour as an example. We've had Christine Council in to talk about curriculum to my staff. I've already trained the staff in all those things and those people coming in, it's like the icing on the cake. So you've got that, that that's the mothership approach of, you know, this is what we want as a school. But then at a departmental level, you've then got your subject knowledge and we give the, the lion's share of our meeting structure time to departments. And the gambit to our middle leaders is we don't want you filling in endless spreadsheets. We want you talking about your curriculum, your, your departmental subject knowledge and collaboratively, sorry, collaboratively planning as a team to improve your curriculum delivery. And that's really the approach that we take. And then for any one member of staff, they get four CPD, CPD uh, ring fence days in the year to do something that is specific and pertinent to them. So it might be they want to go and visit another school to look at how um, teachers in another school teach history, for sake of argument. That's my, my actual specialism. It might be that you're trying to, to work on and develop on, I'm making this up, but I'm not higher order questioning. And you want all your CPD to focus around that. So there's kind of three layers there. There's the school, there's a, the subject or department, and then there's you. You also say that skills are not transferable. 
would again, Sam, what do you mean by that? Yeah, there's been um, a genericism of skills um, across you know, over a number of years, I would argue. And, and if you think about um, Bloom's taxonomy and the revised taxonomy that was uh, published, I think it was around 2002, the revised taxonomy came out. And it was all about uh, evaluation and synthesis and creation. And we had we went through an era as a profession of pelts or thinking skills days and schools have had these kind of collapsed curriculum days whereby everybody's got to work together to try and understand what evaluation means and then the the kind of the 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 thinking the thinking that's gone behind it is then the evaluation can then be pushed out cross curricular across the curriculum and everybody will engage in you know evaluation based lessons the thing is, evaluation means a completely different thing from one subject to the next. How you evaluate a maths problem is totally different to how you might evaluate someone being a very knowledgeable um, athlete versus a, a historian trying to evaluate the reasons for an event coming about. So whilst we might all say we use the word evaluation in our subjects, it just means different things to the subject disciplines. And actually the, the skill, as it were, is a subject disciplinary skill that comes from the substantive subject disciplinary knowledge. And it's actually the building up of the knowledge that allows you to evaluate, to synthesize, to, to analyze, and, and kind of taking it a step further, if I don't know anything about my subject, what am I actually evaluating? And this is where I, I, I believe knowledge is so important and so powerful. Sam, I really loved that. Um, that chapter you wrote about skills in Scotland, there's quite a big emphasis on, you know, skills for learning, life and work. And, um, you know, just, just for example, problem solving is one of them. And you think, well, the, the problem solving that you do in PE doesn't really transfer to the problem solving that you would use for life, for learning and work. You're, you're problem solving a 2v1 situation, for example, in PE. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't relate to your life, learning and work. You know, so I really, I really enjoyed that chapter. Thank you. Um, just moving on, um, you touched briefly on a little bit on homework. Um, mm -hmm. And we spoke about this a lot in our school. Um, you know, what place do you feel homework has in a school is it is it vital is it important is it necessary it's a difficult one because you've again from one school to the next and it, and it can depend on the catchment as well of the pet you know in terms of the parents there could be a parental expectation that your school should set homework and you can come under quite a lot of criticism if you don't set it at all equally the flip side you can have parents that don't value it so they won't insist their child does it um, and then you can have other schools where pa parents feel there's too much homework set and it's affecting the, the mental health and well-being of their child i think there's a, there's an issue with with homework in that um if we present if we're asking pupils to go away and and work on new material and new knowledge it's a bit like saying it's an independent learning task you you could end up with pupils with massive misconceptions around you know the content itself and you may well end up having to reteach it I, I would argue and the way in which we do homework where I, where I work is we build it into our knowledge organizers which the pupils are issued with on day one of every of every term and the parents get the the hyperlinked all these knowledge organizers that reside on our websites they can see the homework at the start but our homework is broadly based around reading the knowledge organizer or perhaps reading some articles around the subject and then in terms of the marking we give the pupils low stakes retrieval practice quizzes which are then self or peer marks because the other side is 
you know you set a massive homework project over a span of eight weeks and it's and it's and, it, and in terms of kind of the, the you know the, the efficacy and the thinking behind it it seems like a really good thing to do because you're going to get the, the kids to research and they're going to produce something amazing and then eight weeks later you're either in a position where none of them have done it or half of them have done it so you've got to then start putting kids in detention or whatever else or at its best you get 30 of these projects that are this thick and you've got to take all that marking home and then you've kind of engineered for yourself 30 or 40 hours of marking which is unsustainable so for me it's about a degree of independence but ensuring that the the homework that you set kind of um recursively recaps what you try to do in school and then in terms of the marking you're making it really easy you mentioned um, in the book about the mafia effect and closing the attainment gap is a, like it's a key priority in scotland how do you suggest that local authorities, schools and teachers can help tackle this? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Matthew effect, the, the, the big thing that really doesn't help, if, if I go back to that chapter about behaviour, poor behaviour in schools, and I think about kind of a restorative approaches that are used in many schools, not all, but, you know, a number, um, there's an issue I think there that after a period of time, you, if you start with a restorative approach, you know, you build a new school and that's the first thing that you do, you see a positive kind of improvement in behavior or a positive spike in behavior for maybe a three to nine month period. And then it starts to dip. Um, so because people tend to, to realize after a while that there's kind of no real actual sanction you're not really going to do anything apart from just talk to them and that's not to say that you should do bad things to pupils but th th there's no actual sanction for for the behavior so i think in terms of the matthew effect the first thing is to be really clear about behavior about the culture about the level of consistency you want in your school i think that the, the second aspect in terms of the matthew effect is to think about the quality of you know of delivery which we've kind of just sort of teased out over the last few minutes really but how do you want your teachers to teach if it's a fandangled you know series of games in lessons and it's all about voyages of discovery and it's a thousand different worksheets and it's an you know it's activity driven it's a pedagogically driven curriculum approach you're probably going to find that those disadvantaged pupils fall further and further and further behind because actually what you're doing in lessons it looks really active and it looks like there's learning taking place but nothing's really sticking so i think it's about thinking about utilizing the you know research-based methods that will allow pupils to learn so from the point of view of schools and local authorities i think it's thinking about culture and about how the curriculum is delivered and i would never really steer away from those two things i i, I think we hugely overcomplicate the way schools work and i think we over hugely overcomplicate teaching in general that's not to say that teaching isn't a really specialised um, profession. You know, I think it is. And I think the actual the art and craft of teaching is, um, is, is difficult, to be honest. The, you know, the idea that you've, you're going to stand in front of pupils for 22 hours a week is not an easy thing. But I think we throw so much at it and so much into the pot for all the right reasons and the right intentions. But it's almost too much. I think we just need to keep things really simple. If the pupils behave and the teachers can teach, then guess what? The pupils do well. And the teachers are doing what they want to do, which is to teach properly. Sam, you mentioned there, um, trying not to overcomplicate teaching. There's a lot recently about co-op learning and active learning. 
Mm. I've had some people on our podcast previously singing and dancing about how co-op learning and active learning is the be-all and end-all and it, it engages pupils and it, it keeps it alive. Yeah. You and your book kind of feel quite strongly about this, the idea of the teacher becoming the facilitator, which yeah. in Scotland, I've been a lot of CPDs where they say, you know, make the teacher become the facilitator, whereas you and your book quite strongly talk about the teacher is the teacher and they should be there simply to teach. You know, can you elaborate a wee bit on that? Yeah, I think, you know, if we take the, the idea of the teacher being the expert first, going back to that idea of, you know, a, a subject-rich, you know, knowledge-rich member of staff in a classroom, that is a hugely expensive commodity for a school. You know, staffing makes up, for any one school, 80 to 85% of your school's budget. So I, I'm, I'm going to make this up now. You've got a nine million pound budget, seven-ish million pounds is your staff. And you're telling your staff seven million pounds worth of money to be quiet while the pupils teach each other in effect. If you're going with an activity driven approach to me instantly, that just sounds mad. If I, if I then think about it just in the classroom environment, and I, I can think of examples from the past that you know, even I probably would have conducted in, in, in an era of trying to entertain kids in many regards. You've got pictures. I've seen lessons, foreign language lessons, for example. There's pictures on the wall of a television and it's got, I can't speak Spanish, but, you know, la televisión or whatever it is in Spanish. And the kids are going around with a clipboard and they've got to write down the Spanish for TV. Well, it looks to an observer like wow they're all engaged they're all doing this activity clearly they're learning lots you know they can articulate back to the observer what the learning objectives are but what have they actually learned could you actually say that those kids really know the spanish for tv just as an example and if they can't say it back and say what it is they haven't learned anything and if they and if you come back to you know in six weeks time what did we learn six weeks ago through questioning then you haven't drilled that into them it's not in their long-term schema and i think this is the issue with it the more activity driven curriculum is it creates a false proxy for learning because you know walking into a classroom you see this level of vibrancy and kids talking to one another and they're all doing an activity and they can all tell you the learning objectives sounds great and, and you know, on paper it sounds amazing but the reality is certainly through my own experiences they've not learned as much as they could have done. And for me, it's about opportunity cost. We've got such a finite amount of time with our pupils. Why waste it in terms of taking risks with learning when we know that if we give it to them and you critics of this will say, you're just spoon feeding kids. No, you're actually, you're doing your job. The kids will learn far more at a much more rapid rate. And going back to that notion of the Matthew effect, you'll start to reverse it quite quickly. So Sam, if you were, if you were to walk into a lesson in your school and it was, the approach was very much direct instruction, mm. chalk talk. Would you be happy with that? Yeah. So in terms of my own school, we've got a really kind of clear routine for learning. Um, and this isn't to take away from teacher autonomy. If anything, it's actually to give the teachers greater autonomy in their lessons. But the way our lessons start is a teacher will meet and greet the pupils at the classroom door. The pupils will engage in an instant, uh, engage, well, do now task or retrieval practice starter. Uh, we the, the teacher then you know, gets the pupils to mark those. So they either self or peer mark that initial starter activity. And that's a settler in many regards, but also it's recursive learning. 
The teacher then explains the context of the lesson and then um, goes over what the big question for the lesson is. So we don't have learning objectives as a school. We got rid of them because I just think they're a waste of time. Um, and then kind of the way we've trained our staff is that anywhere between 60 to 80% of the lesson is actually retrieval practice with anywhere between 20 to 40% of the lesson being a presentation of new material. So it's constantly building incrementally new content but also going back over old content. So it's absolutely secure in our kids' minds. And for me, I want my teachers to talk. I go back to, you know, seven million pounds worth of money being told to be silent or the guide from the side rather than the criticism, the sage on the stage is just mad in my opinion. Uh, and we really do place our teachers on a pedestal that they are the experts. And I use that phrase a lot in assemblies. I use it with parents in parental talks. And I remind the staff of that, you know, the, they're there to teach those kids, not for the kids to teach each other. Sam, just to pick very quickly up there, you mentioned there, I've got a colleague who'll be listening who's, who's quite big on his retrieval practice or just looking into it from a whole school point of view. Hmm. Could you quickly then just explain what you mean by retrieval practice and how you use it? Yeah, I mean, so in its most basic format, um, it, almost every lesson in our school kind of starts in roughly the same kind of way and that that creates a level of consistency across the school that's not to make it into a cargo cult but subject teachers will start lessons with maybe a five or ten question retrieval practice starter so let's just say for sake of argument we're 12 lessons into what i've been teaching you those five or ten questions that you face today at the start of the lesson could be from anything we've done over the last 10 to 12 lessons so it might be all the way from lesson one and i'm trying to see what you've retained and where your gaps in knowledge are and then we do a fortnightly retrieval practice quiz which is normally 20 questions and then every six weeks we do a 50 question retrieval practice quiz and it's all about you know pupils being able to recall and remember powerful knowledge that we want those pupils to know yeah. because if you haven't got that baseline of knowledge you then can't do the more difficult bit which is to apply it to questions because you've got nothing to apply because you've got nothing in your heads sam see just something you said earlier on about you think learning objects learning objectives are a waste of time Throughout my time at university, that's probably the first thing that we've been taught. Like, you have to make sure that you've got your learning intentions, your success criteria. Why, why do you feel so strongly that you think it's, a, it's, it's maybe not the best way to go? Yeah, I think from your own, your own planning as a teacher, you can use learning objectives. Um, you know, I don't have an issue with it from that perspective. But I think about the classroom environment and, and the things I've seen over the years. Pupils writing learning objectives down. I've seen so many lessons where 10 to 15 minutes of a lesson is literally pupils head down, writing the objectives down and then color coding them red, amber, green for the one that they might try and work toward in those lessons. At its worst, I've seen them differentiated. So, you know, if you're you know, aiming to do well, you might want to do the, the gold uh, learning objective. And if you're you know, going to try and shy away from doing any work, you're going to do the green learning objective. And I think that caps expectations on pupils. The other side is a lot of learning objectives tend to be very skills based. And again, when you go and talk to pupils, what you're looking at today and they'll turn around and they'll say, well, today we're looking at metacognitive reasoning skills, which again, sounds great. What does that actually mean? It doesn't really mean anything, uh, you know, and they can't articulate what it means that you tend to get kind of the, the same thing repeated back parrot fashion over and over. From, in, in, to, to my mind, 
I'd far rather staff used a big question, which gives all of the core knowledge you're trying to get to, you know, impress on the pupils and teach them in that lesson a sense of meaning. I guess if you're going to put this into kind of Christine Council's world, you know, big curriculum thinker, this is the core in the hinterland. So all that core knowledge, well, what you, what you, what's the purpose behind it and what you don't want is a criticism of well you just wrote learning and this is all about pub quizzes there's a purpose behind that core knowledge so you know if again i take my example of history which i teach um you might have a lesson in with a big question is how significant was the wall street crash and hitler's rise to power that gives a real sense of meaning to why you're looking at the wall street crash today and its overall significance in a, a broader sense within a, a wider framework of what you're looking at if that makes sense, but it gives it the lesson a real focus or a series of lessons a focus. Super, Sam. So I'm just moving on. You, um, differentiation in Scotland is kind of, yeah. it's a big thing. And uh, it's a big thing that through observed lessons, that's kind of a key focus. And mm. through our school inspection, you won't get an excellent uh, for teaching and learning unless there's clear yeah. differentiation in every class. Um, to quote you in your book, you're right, and I know you're talking about the word differentiation, not so much mm. the kind of theme, but you quote, um, differentiation should be abolished and banned in schools. <laughs> can, you, can you elaborate what you mean about that? Yeah, I think differentiation has become so, such a, almost a toxic term, actually, certainly in England, in English schools, um, by many staff. And it's, it's used as a, a kind of a lazy narrative for lessons. And going back to what you've just said, you can't get an excellent unless you've differentiated. And for someone giving you feedback on your lesson, uh, the number I could count, well, if I've had a pound for every time I've heard someone say, you need to dif differentiate your lesson more to, to staff and staff go away and sort of scratch their head and think, I don't even know what the hell that actually means. It is, is unbelievable. It doesn't really advance the teacher's delivery of a lesson. Equally, thinking about differentiation by activity or by task, the amount of planning time that goes into that, if, you know, if you're going to take it to its fullest sense, 30, you've got a class of 30, you're going to produce 30 different worksheets for those 30 different pupils to meet their individualised learning needs. Because that's kind of the spirit of differentiation by task in its truest sense. You may, what tends to happen, apart from teacher burnout and teachers being up till 3 a.m., thrashing out a laminator and, and uh, you know and burning out ink in their you know cartridges to their printers is that a lot of the work tends to be dampened down in terms of the expectation levels of the pupils because we develop through our own internal biases as teachers because we all have them um a, a, a view of what pupils can and cannot do and that will influence the work that we then set on our pupils and i think we need to flip it on its head and again with the, the idea of the matthew effect you know, giving um, the people who at face value isn't meant, isn't meant to be as intellectually you know, as bright in theory, the same work as somebody who in theory is just again is nonsensical. You're holding that child behind. And actually it's not that the pupil perhaps isn't bright. It's just that they haven't had the exposure to the necessary level of knowledge or the cultural capital. Yeah. You know, if I, I, if I put it in a sports sense, I'm awful at rugby. Okay. So by differentiating it completely all the time, so I, all, all I can ever do is one thing. It's not going to make me a great rugby player. I need to be exposed to playing, you know, to, to being able to develop as a rugby player as high as I possibly can with the hope of pushing me up 
you know, I may not, not ever become a professional or a town player or whatever, but it will make me better by being pushed harder than it will in terms of you damping everything down on me. Just before we end the show, obviously we, we kind of spoke before we, we came on. Maybe for teachers up in Scotland, what's the new norm down in England with the, the COVID-19 situation? What maybe advice could you give that's <laughs> anything that you could maybe, maybe point us in the right direction so far? Well, you've solved it, Sam. You must have solved it, have you? <laughs> yeah, I found the cure. Gosh, I wish. The new norm, I think the new norm is, is a bit like this, actually, in terms of meetings taking place on Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever other um, platform. Um, there's been a real frenzy of online activity, and I'm sure it's probably the same in Scotland, where everybody has been delivering lessons online. Um, and I think there's question marks over about the sustainability of that and actually the impact of that in terms of live online um, lessons. Um, I think oh, there's a degree of not really of uncertainty, I think is probably the norm at the moment, if I'm really kind of fair, that we still don't know what yet is going to happen come September. Um, we don't know, really know what's going to happen at, at this current point in time, what's going to happen in the summer. Um, and then more importantly, kind of as we move forwards, what might happen in the autumn and the winter as well. So I think the new norm is one of being sat in front of a, a laptop screen, but also worrying about the future and what might may or may not happen. Could you give our listeners just a little bit more where they can find more about yourself, about your book, and what, if you've got any more books planned in the future? Yeah, so uh, I'm on Twitter and my Twitter handle's at Strico Master. Uh, my book, Education Exposed, is published by John Cat, so it's available via the John Cat website or on Amazon. Um, I'm, I'm in talks with John Cat at the moment about whether we, uh, or whether I ultimately write maybe two or three more books to make this part of a series, uh, time permitting. <laughs> well, Sam, it's been an honour to have you on the, the podcast. You've Thank been, you for having me. You've been fantastic, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of take-home messages from this podcast for, for other members of staff. Thank you ever so much for having me. It's been a real pr- Thank you, Sam. pleasure and Thank a privilege. You. Thanks, Sam. Thank you.